0: Welcome to This is for the CV, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit. This is a podcast by Anthony and Rebecca, two professors in communication and political science chatting about politics, pop culture, and the things in between.
1: This month we are joined by Dr. Timothy Nockin. He is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at Texas Tech University and the department chair. He joins us to talk about his career researching Congress, and we explore topics of trust, deliberation, and party dynamics as they relate to Congress. Hello, Anthony.
0: Hello, Rebecca.
1: And hello, Dr. Knocken. Hi. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being with us today. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we have another great guest. Dr. Notkin is the chair of the political science department at Texas Tech, one of my bosses. And (laughs) so I'll only say good things. No, I really only have good things to say. But what we normally ask our guests is to start out telling us sort of what your path was to education, how you ended up where you're at, and what were some of the things that sort of influenced you to want to stay in research and teaching?
2: Yeah, well, I guess, uh, well, one, thanks for having me. This is kind of fun. I don't think I've ever been on a podcast before. So this is fun Uh-oh. new territory for me. Uh, yeah. I appreciate uh, the invite. And um, yeah, so I kind of interesting, I guess, one of the things is I learned on academic Twitter is academic Twitter is useful to some regard. And then the list of grievances is large. So part of my <laughs> path to uh, um, to education academic, I think is one of those that I learned recently on academic Twitter is that I'm probably, my father wa- taught at a university. So he had a doctorate in education and um, was a prophet at teaching school. So I grew up around uh, a university. And, and I know that's been one of those things that like, well, if you're the offspring of, a, of an academic, you're going to be an academic, and you know, which I get. And part of that is, I think, um, you know, growing up around education and around, um, you know, a university town and and kind of having uh, friends who were also the uh, offspring of, of people with advanced degrees. I just always, you know, was always kind of something that was important. I mean, education was always important in my family. And you know, I bring that up now because Academic Twitter says, well, you know, that's clearly because your dad got you into academia. And I go, no, nah, that wasn't the case at all, um, other than the sense that I was lucky in the sense that sometimes if I had papers to do, like, he could take me to the university library and we could get a book about it. And that was really mm-hmm. exciting for me. Um, completely different areas of of, of interest. So um, from an early age, uh, as I as I went to college, I knew I wanted to study political science. And I was kind of excited that... Uh, there was that field. But I think like most people um, at that time, the idea was it was my interest in kind of applied and practical and real world politics um, that got me into that Mm -hmm. and uh, thought that studying political science was more of a normative enterprise uh, in the sense that, you know, we could go on to be politicians or policy practitioners. um, But, um, you know, then I decided that you know, growing up in a family where um, my father taught at the university, that that, that sounds like a pretty good existence. So then I decided I wanted to go to grad school to kind of follow that. And it was at grad school that I think the kind of the best corollary is it's probably the difference between playing college sports and professional sports. cards in, <laughs> in the sense that the speed and the intensity ratcheted up a lot. So all the stuff that I learned in undergraduate school was really useful, but Uh, it was also very quickly um, clear that that was um, you're going to surpass that and things would change so you know I was lucky early on in grad school to figure out that okay I if I want to continue to do this I either have to uh, change the way graduate education is done and that's not going to happen or I need to kind of figure out where's my niche and I and I was lucky that I found my niche and I thought I was interested in Legislative politics and um, rules and procedures, and um, within you know a semester or two, I, I kind of found that. And you know, I think graduate school is a very trying time for a lot of people. And part of it for me, it, it was no different um, for a lot of reasons. Um, some of which were uh, are just normal for for anyone at that age in graduate school, and some for you know kind of the politics of your graduate program. But mm-hmm. I kind of only half joke half jokingly say that I was too dumb to realize <laughs> that I probably wasn't the the top pick of the class and out of spite and maybe stubbornness, I <laughs> stuck with it. And, and, you know, I think there's a lesson, you know, I think grit, isn't that a popular kind of, uh, term today. And, you know, I don't think I did anything different or better. I just like thought, well, I want to do this and kind of the stubbornness stuck it out. So, um, you know, at the end, graduate school, um, I was very fortunate to find a job. My first job was at the University of Houston, uh, which I really liked until I did. not And that ended, <laughs> uh, I will say, well, it ended, well, I'll be honest, you know, it's, we all have our paths. So this is about paths is I was denied tenure at the University of Houston and I'm still get a bit, you know, I'm over most of it, but sometimes it activates my bitterness. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm of the mind that there was a case to be made that I didn't deserve tenure. Uh, they didn't make that case, but um, there was some, questions. And, you know, ultimately I was voted eight to one in favor by the college uh, and still the Dean stepped in. So long story short, uh, I ended up at Texas Tech. I was really fortunate that um, I had this opportunity. There were some folks here who knew my work and they had a job opening. I applied and I, uh, I got the offer. And I think I was also at that time looking for other jobs. I had an offer from uh, the Library of Congress to work in the Congressional Research Service, which really wasn't, a credible threat in the sense that they the, the position was one I was not really suited for. But it parlayed into Texas Tech. So mm, mm-hmm. um, coming to Texas Tech, I kind of had to start over. But I found um, you know a nice environment here. And I was fortunate to come here at a time when uh, the department started kind of having more of an identity. Folks were um, staying and getting tenured. So there was kind of a nucleus. Uh, the university at that time was focused on growth and expansion, and I think was at a time that was, for some people, difficult, but for some of us, really exciting, where tech was trying to break out of that regional mindset of a West Texas university to become a national research uh, university. And um, fortunately, I I got tenure and uh, was very happy about that. Mm-hmm. And, uh then just through circumstances ended up having a chance to become chair. And I never aspired to become a chair. I never had any sort of interest in doing that, but having served um, under some chairs that some good ones, but a lot of a couple bad ones in particular, mm-hmm. I always thought it was very important to be willing to serve, not because you aspired to the position, but because this truly is a service position and it's important for your department and for your colleagues mm-hmm. to have people. And I'm not saying, I'm the best candidate or the only candidate by any stretch, but um, there's a number of people here that I, th- I think have that mindset. Um, are you willing to do service like that, that provides kind of a, a foundation for other colleagues? And and I was willing to do that. And fortunately, I've had a lot of really good folks to help me and kind of the support of my colleagues who I really appreciate and try to work hard for. And um, that's kind of how I got there. I know that was kind of a long rambling thing. So no, that's a well, what we
0: like. We like yeah,
1: no, they're <laughs> always long answers. It's good. There's never a direct short path to where yeah. you are Nuh-uh. today.
2: Nuh-uh.
0: It's
1: like no. start at zero and take us to where you are now in 30 seconds or less. Yeah. yeah so,
2: um, yeah, I mean, uh, and from here, you know, I still have a lot of kind of research work I want to do because I still need to get promoted to full professor. And that's that's my aim is I want to, to since they gave me tenure, kind of validate that that faith in my ability that now hopefully is uh, I have two years left on my chair term that my plan is to then not be chair after that and (laughs) Mm -hmm. kind of you know the Homer Simpson meme where Homer just kind of goes back into the ivy Uh, (laughs) yes (laughs) that's what I want to do I want to kind of take my time get get my um, um, research agenda back up and then kind of just go back to being a normal faculty member
1: and you mentioned being chair is a service position. And it is because it takes you away from the classroom and it takes you away from your research. And that's for those people that are sort of outside of academia may not be something that folks are aware of.
2: Yeah, it's really an interesting position. And and since there's this perception that it's a position of power and influence, and there is some of that, but um, it's basically, I look at this as, so I study Congress. So I, I kind of to being department chair is akin to being a party leader or speaker of the house so in the sense as i'm representing my colleagues so it's not a direct vote but if your colleagues don't want you to be chair the likelihood you remain as chair is low Mm -hmm. and the likelihood that you're an effective chair is zero Mm -hmm. um, because you don't enjoy the confidence so i always look at this as you know, we're going to have to make decisions and I'm not always going to be able to do exactly what the faculty want. But first and foremost, I want to be able to represent my department and represent my colleagues to try to get the things that we need from the upper administration to do that. Now, the other side of that coin is there's this huge upper administration pushing <laughs> down on you. So you're really in the middle. So part of this is you try to convey what you want as a department to do the things to implement these grand visions or strategic plans as they're so uh, fond of of pointing to. (laughs) And then when you do that, they said, yeah, well, the strategic plan doesn't really do much because at the end of the day, we're not going to give you the resources to do it. So your job is to give this report. Your job is to do this assessment. Your job is to click these approvals. So um, in that regard, You know, I think one of the reasons faculty have been really supportive of me is the sense that we kind of have an enemy is a strong word, but kind of a common foe. Mm -hmm. You know, when these football coaches or basketball coaches all talk about respect, you know, we're not getting the respect. Well, our built-in kind of foil for that is the upper administration, the college, and the dean, and the provost, and the president. In the sense, says we're doing all these things you want us to do. We don't get any respect because we have three positions to fill, and you're only giving us two. And where are the others going? Well, it's clearly it's going to chemistry and biology. So, on, on that hand, it's 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 kind of strange. Is you you know you you'd like to think you have agency to do more, but at the end of the day, you're kind of just you know, and especially in the college at Texas Tech, the College of Arts and Sciences is really big. And then one of 15 departments mm-hmm. ranging from English and philosophy to math and physics. So political science and gets lost in the shuffle and a lot of others do. So uh, a lot of it is just frustrating. You want to do more, but, you know, you don't have either the autonomy to do it. And like everyone else at the university, uh, you don't have the resources it takes. So
1: Anthony joined the college of media and communication what shortly after it broke away and became its own college
0: uh maybe a couple years after i came in 17 so yeah we have our own dean it's in that
1: sweet spot yeah yeah Yeah. well
0: you know have control of your own budget's a good thing i mean Mm -hmm. it's 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 good but to your point but to your point i think all positions of power and leadership i think we get it wrong way around sometimes and start thinking oh i have this this legitimate power because I'm in this position versus no, the people gave you that power and they can snatch it from you in a heartbeat because it's easier to replace one person than 50 and nobody's <laughs> going to replace 50. They're going to get rid of the coach, so to speak.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. exactly what I look at. It. I go, there, there's, there's two ways these things end, right? You stay too long and you end up fired, <laughs> which, which again is fine. I mean, they, they fire you from being chaired. It's not like you're leaving the universe. You're just out of chair or it's like, okay, um, there's nowhere to go but down. You've done what you can. It's time to go. You know, Part of this has really forced me to kind of use things or, or, or into positions where I have to do things that I am really uncomfortable doing. So it, it's really forced me to do things that aren't my strong suit, which is more confrontation. Mm. More con- mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a Midwesterner. We just passive-aggressive. <laughs> Just don't talk to people. <laughs> hide and it goes away. That's my mindset. Conflict, uh, confrontation, agitation is not really my a strong suit. It's all had to do that. It's telling people no. So, so part of it's been growth. But to wit, is it just really takes a lot out of you emotionally, having to tell people bad news. That mm-hmm. it, you know, it's not as bad for me as them, but it, it still takes its toll. And sure. Um, having to answer questions, but, but you're absolutely right is, is that it's easier to get rid of the one than it is the 50. So,
1: so you, you mentioned that, um, you know, your focus has become Congress and you teach a course and you have for a while on Congress for both undergraduates and graduate students. So if there were like one or two things that you wish every American knew about Congress, that they rarely don't, what would those things be? Good question.
2: Well, one of the things that I, I would like is, and I'm probably just as guilty of advancing this as trying to repel it, is to be much more supportive of the notion of legislative government. Is if, from a normative perspective, I, th- I think you know we look at Congress, and there was these jokes a couple of years ago of Congress is least, less popular than used car salesmen and root canals and cockroaches, and if you look at the public- and on the one hand that's kind of funny and cute but on the other hand i think what we can see happening with that kind of happened on january 6th there's mm-hmm. this cynicism this negativity can elevate into questions about legitimacy mm-hmm. and if you want to think about legitimacy of government i think article 1 of the constitution that the framers certainly had this perspective is power should be vested in the congress a multi member in this case, multi-chamber institution rather than in the unilateral kind of unified executive, one person. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I really would like people to kind of, uh, from a broad perspective, think about the importance of deliberation and legislative government. And then from there, thinking how hard it really is, you know, one of the things you look at, again, going back to survey research is Congress is consistently the least popular branch. The Supreme Court is consistently the most kind of popular branch. And when you kind of look at how these two institutions operate, totally opposite. Congress is in a directly responsible to the people, directly answerable to the people, done in the sunshine. Why don't you can watch it on TV. We see how the sausage gets made. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we don't like is to see how laws and sausage are made. The Supreme Court on the other hand is highly secretive. Uh, they deliberate behind closed doors. I mean, they have robes and, and this kind of aura about them and they serve for life. Mm-hmm. So they kind of go off into the back chambers and deliberate and do what they do. And then they issue these edicts that have and oftentimes force of law. And none of us know how they really reach it other than the sense that they provide us a written written documentation for that. So I really would would like people to take what we often look at as a negative with legislative government and look at that as really positives. Now, granted, we're not doing a lot of deliberation today. We know that. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's no way Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders are going to sit and deliberate and talk (laughs) and convince each other. But we need to get consensus to pass a law. I mean, building 50% plus one is really important. And then the other thing is, I think, based on that, and one of the things that uh, kind of two political science-y kind of widely held views that run counter to what the public does. So the public thinks that Congress makes too much money, they're all rich, and they do make a good salary until you realize that they might have to maintain a home in Chicago and Washington, D.C. on $175,000, $175,000, a lot of money until you have to hold two households like that and no other income, and term limits. People are always mad that, you know, oh, we need term limits. Well, we hate that. Well, all these ills we point to with Congress uh, right now Uh, would just be magnified with term limits no expertise uh shirking no participation so you know the key is we have term limits and they're in the form of elections it's just that we tend to re-elect same people from our one of 435 or two of 50 uh, in terms of house and senate as opposed to you know we we like our congressperson we just hate everyone else i think we're seeing a change now i mean everything's in flux but all that goes back to the cynicism and kind of the lack of respect that legislative government really deserves, but simultaneously tends to feed into kind of this negative perception of what they do.
0: Mm. You mentioned the approval rating of Congress. And I and getting ready for this interview. I looked it up. And so in May of twenty twenty it was thirty one percent. It had a low. Wow, that's low. It had a low it had, well, a, low, it had a low in December <laughs> of fifteen percent. Yeah. And then, as of May 2021, it's 31 percent again. And so, I guess my question is: Historically, like, there, where do you see the line of demarcation when people lost faith in good government? I mean, I love, God, I love, I'm an institutionalist. I, I I love government. I love the fact that I can go to my grocery store and know that they're not going to poison me, most likely. Yeah. Like, where did the faith go? Did did we did did we put it in something else? Did it just evaporate? What
2: do you think? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I I think there there are probably a lot of avenues to pursue. I mean, I think if we go back to the 60s and 70s, I mean, these are times of turmoil. So when we look at the issues and the kind of changes that are taking place in government, we're seeing a civil rights movement that caused disruption in society, especially in the South, that had huge political implications, uh, certainly in terms of realignment in the South. Uh, We had Vietnam, which led to Uh, rancor and discord and kind of generational uh, strife. Um, We had Watergate Mm. uh, hot on the heels of that as well, which led to kind of feed into cynicism uh, of politicians and government. Um, But this time we're also seeing Congress reform itself. So a lot of really interesting reforms recorded voting. So now in areas where Congress used to kind of, it was public, but the votes weren't identifiable who voted how starts to become uh, public government in the sunshine so there are now requirements for reporting and making sure people have access to see that. So again, uh, you know, putting sunshine on it, it gives people more of an opportunity to kind of see, you know, the ugliness associated not ugliness, but the kind of difficulty we reach out when we have Compromise. A compromise is is bipartisanship is is normatively always a good thing until you have to do it, and then oh, there's are sellout. <laughs> but also coming along at this time is we're 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 moving out of an era where kind of parties and partisanship have bottomed out in terms of party identification, and we're entering into the Reagan era just as parties are starting to re- reform. And I mentioned the civil rights movement because what we see there is you know the South has always been more conservative but solidly democratic. Now we get to the 1980s and it's starting to say, wow, the conservatives are starting to move into the Republican camp, Mm -hmm. uh, leaving then Democrats to be uniformly liberal. So we start to see that polarization taking place. So I think now we've reached a stage with polarization, which in and of itself isn't bad, right? Having a uniformly conservative Republican Party and a kind of a uniformly more liberal Democratic Party is pretty good in terms of accountability. If you don't like conservative government, you vote Democrat. But mm-hmm. what, what, what we've also seen now, as this has matured and played out, is we don't deliberate rationally. There's a lot of motivated reasoning. Uh, you know, he's using the example yesterday when he's talking to a student, you know, uh, under the Trump administration, uh, he. America first resulted in tariffs. So the Republican Party is starting to support tariffs and reduce support for free trade, which Mm -hmm. is completely antithetical to the 20th century Republican Party. which Mm -hmm. Since the post-World War II era has always been open borders, free trade, not open borders, but free trade. And the uh, the Democrats have been more likely, but then the Democrats just kind of like, well, now relatively we're more free. So again, parties or leadership within these parties can pivot on what they support, and rather than having kind of the backlash from from the rank and file, you tend to have everyone kind of like fall in line. So mm-hmm. I think that's created a situation now where polarization's taken on a much different role and I think leads to this kind of cynicism and and again, it culminating in something like January sixth, where political leaders can say the election was stolen, this is a fraud, and you see some support for that among political elites. I mean Contrary to what some of these political elites are saying, and I don't want to pick out names for fear of making them they aided and abetted that. Mm -hmm. And now we see, well, clearly, no, it's okay. But the lasting legacy is erosion of legitimacy of our political system.
1: So you write about, you look at new conservatives and you research whether they're actually more conservative, at least through amendments um, on pieces of legislation. That was a a fairly recent study. What was it like 2018, I think. And so do you see similar things happening on the side of the Democratic Party in terms of sort of the more liberal side getting more airtime, being the louder voices, but policies that actually go into effect are fairly moderate?
2: Yeah, yeah. Interesting you bring that up. That's kind of... um... Yeah, this is all coming full circle. I mean, this is really kind of changing pretty quickly. And then with the uh, shifts in um, party control and such. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a colleague and I were really interested in just this Tea Party movement. And then the Freedom Caucus movement is like, are they really different? Are they are they kind of like the tail wagging the dog with the Republican Party? Are they exhibiting this disproportionate influence? And in at least our measures of you know, like roll call behavior and such, there, there's not a lot of evidence of that. And one of the reasons is, you know, Congress and party leadership is designed like, hey, if this is going to divide us, we're just going to keep it off the agenda. So that's very likely what's happening. But, but as you're pointing to now with airtime, I'm glad you mentioned that is the motivation might not be policy motivation. And I think now we're seeing that especially as, as this is kind of, I think, really accelerated the last two years is there's a lot of people in government now who are less concerned with actual governance, Hmm. less concerned with actual policy, and more concerned with messaging. I mean, in fact, you've seen the Republicans remove, well, the Republicans didn't do it, but the House removed... marjorie taylor green from her committee assignments and her response was fantastic yeah. now i got more time to go agitate <laughs> madison cawthorn uh, again i'll pick mm-hmm. on the two conservatives but we'll get to the democrats in a second um saying you know hey i'm not here to worry about that i'm here just to kind of represent my my constituents uh through rhetoric and, and publicity so i mean really the motivation is kind of performance uh and, and you're getting some of that in the democratic side i mean democrat and, and I, I don't want to speak too much on this i don't know much about it but least in terms of adherence to government role of government democrats have a different mindset but you see some of that i mean the squad is similar uh, and you know the more liberal kind of newer members from some of the democratic constituency in the sense that they're more likely to buck their leadership and appeal directly to kind of the masses and similarly you know again i can't speak necessarily to their policy perspective but in terms of kind of like uh, effectiveness scores—they're not as effective as some, which is, is true. So they're not quite as over the top as some of the Republicans, like MTG and Cawth- Cawthorn, and and um, I can't remember one of the the woman from Colorado. Um, but you do see people like uh, we'll just use the Squad, AOC, who tends to have some policy content in her 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 tweets, but those tweets are directed at an audience outside of Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, Omar from Minnesota who takes uh, who's gotten hot water with some of her tweets like that. Unlike the Republicans, it seems that tends to generate much more discord within the democratic coalition, which is a more diverse coalition, uh, which makes the dynamics how they deal with it a lot different as opposed to Republicans can just kind of have basically seen well, Other than Marjorie Taylor Green have okay. been really pretty quiet on Matt uh, oh my um, goodness issues mm-hmm. and Jim Jordan's issues and but i I think there are corollaries that now we're seeing congress is kind of not to denigrate but performance art is that a lot of they are building these brands and building these kind of movements and it's not clear that there's kind of policy content behind it now there might be and there might not be but that that's yet to be seen and and again if congress is now just a vehicle to um, you know, serve as a government agency to be like social influencers, like you're on TikTok or—is uh-huh. or, or, that? I don't know all my apps, but and YouTube. I mean, maybe that's what they're doing. I'm just going to become an influencer, and my influencer will be I can use my congressional seat to reach out to conservatives or liberals, as opposed to maybe solve problems and legislate. So, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, all I know about Lauren Boebert is guns. That's all yeah, I know. Yeah. I have no idea anything. I, you have Uzis and Mac Ten. Like, you are all about these guns. And you root some of your research in the idea of, hey, uh, candidate-driven politics are more in the fore than party-driven politics have ever been. And so I wonder what you make of how a candidate can signal their individuality while still courting and needing the resources of that infrastructure.
2: Yeah, and that's always been a trade-off. I mean, parties have always realized that, you know, and I think we're seeing that, you know, I think your example, and I'm glad you brought Bulbert's name so I remember her name other than the woman from Colorado with guns. <laughs>
1: well, that's yeah. how most people know. <laughs> yeah,
2: she, and that probably makes her really happy. Like, I've done uh-huh. my job here. Right, right. <laughs> but you, you look at a guy like Joe Manchin right now, and I think there's a prime example, right? Because all else equal, the Democrats would like him to be more of a Democrat. Mm-hmm. But they also realized that Joe Manchin's from West Virginia. There are not a lot of Democrats in West Virginia. So rather than denigrate and vilify him for being more conservative than the the rest of our party kind of uh, team, are we better off with him? Or are we better off trying to find someone more liberal that matches us knowing that likely leads to a Republican Mm -hmm. representing the Senate from West Virginia. So in these polarized times you talk about, that's a lot more difficult because, you know, traditionally what we thought about is the parties tend to have their mainstream and then their moderate wings, you know, moderate Republicans and moderate Democrats or conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. Well, we don't have those anymore. I mean, Manchin's kind of a Uh, an outlier in the sense that he is a Democrat that lies further to the center ideologically than most of his colleagues. But a lot of these other folks are now towards the extremes, extreme conservatives, and maybe increasingly maybe extreme liberals. And that's a kind of difference that we don't quite know how that plays out. When there were moderates, it made sense, right? Well, we might lose Manchin, but maybe there's a Republican vote we can pick up instead. Well, now we know there are not Republican votes to pick up instead, and it, by trying to do so we might lose our left flank in the in the House as Democrats. Um, so that's kind of what motivated our question about are these uh, new conservatives different and are these kind of folks different and I think it creates a much different dynamic for coalition building in Congress than it used mm-hmm. to be where we try to look for the middle, and now in mm-hmm. sense that the kind of the bulk of the parties is is moving to the extremes. And rather than saying, wow, we got two thirds of what we want and that's better for us. I go, no, I didn't get everything. So I'm going to oppose it. So you're seeing some folks draw these lines in the sand, which kind of silly. You're never going to get everything you want being on the extreme of your party, but you get most of what you want. And by being a team player, you get more of, you get two thirds of payout more often than less often. You'd think that would be good, but no, no, and I think that's that messaging politics. And, and it's changed that relationship between uh, the tension between representing your district and being a member of the party, which uh, party leaders from both both sides have always recognized that, hey, sometimes I know you can't take that vote. You're free to vote against it mm-hmm. because we'd rather have you here next term mm-hmm. than not. Uh, and we'll find the vote somewhere else.
1: How do you see the debate over the filibuster sort of playing into the dynamics you're talking about?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting one. And I mean, you know, you can understand why senators like it because it gives them a little extra leverage and it always serves as kind of a backstop to protect them. But, you know, at the same time, I think we're entering kind of troubled times. You know, there was a kind of a report, a meme, if you will, last week about something passed the House 54 to 30, or the Senate 54 to 35. Well, it didn't pass, it lost because it needed 60 votes. And this is the world we live in now. And you think about f- fifty-four votes, which is a clear majority in the Senate, mm-hmm. is no longer sufficient to pass things. Um, and when we're talking about bills having to do with voting rights, you know, harkening back to, you know, is the Voting Rights Act even going to be, uh, you know, applicable? And, I, I, and now it's not just race; it's just people we don't like voting, mm-hmm. or people voting in general. Like this is a real serious issue, and. Um, if Democrats are going to allow kind of these archaic institutional, you know, uh, legacies of the past persist, maybe at the expense of upsetting the minority party and getting rid of a filibuster, you know, that's kind of troubling. So, you know, but it brings up bigger questions. And, you know, these are things more philosophical um, and, and constitutional hypothetical at this time. But, you know, you look at the Senate as, Back in the day, it kind of made sense. But is the Senate even as an institution relevant anymore? When you think about it, mm. I saw something that we are approaching a time when 30% of the United States Senate will represent 70% of the population, mm-hmm. hence that 70% of the Senate will represent 30% of the population. Is that really fair? You know, Now that we have all sorts of you know, legal precedent that one person, one vote is key, yet we have this institution of the Senate which disproportionately, you know, empowers places like Wyoming Mm. and North Dakota and South Dakota. And again, they deserve those representation, but it's a lot different in 2021 than it is in 1787 when they're creating this. And, you know, I think we're on the precipice of having to have some really, and this is my personal thing. So this is big talk and I will see if it happens really important constitutional discussions. Like how do we, you know, what size should the house be? 435 is an arbitrary number. It should probably be bigger, right? Because this, the country's a lot bigger. The Senate, what's the role of the Senate to represent states? Well, is that relevant in 2021? Should we think about ref, uh, reforming and you know changing our legislative institutions and, and the Supreme Court, you know? Contrary to what people, you know, it's kind of funny to see these judges think, well, there's no such thing as a Democratic judge or a Republican judge. But then you look at their decision, and you go, it's perfectly clear they're Republican judges and Democratic judges, which explains why the Senate, uh, especially Republicans in the Senate, are so committed to fighting the battles over judicial appointments because they understand how important they are. And, right. Um, you know. So we talk about stacking the the Supreme Court, and again, nine's not a magic number for any reason other than the sense that that's what it was when they cre- you know, created some, I don't remember when it was, but by, by statute. So, you know, Yeah, they uh, changed
1: it before they could change it again.
2: Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and again, lifetime appointments. So now you're not only are you considering someone's judicial competence, but their health and their youth to try to keep right. them on the court for 70 years. Right. Uh, you know, that's probably so some sort of model maybe to think about revising that not to get rid of an independent judiciary, but maybe expand supreme court maybe what we do is we we have a, a panel of 25 people who serve 15 20 year terms and roll over and then we randomly draw from that 25 to serve as nine to here i don't know but but i think these are conversations we really should be having and you know there's a sense that you know tradition's important it's the way we've always done it but when we're we're looking at, at kind of how fragile elements of our democracy are right now it might be worthwhile to have these conversations about changing the political institutions to try to preserve, you know, stability in terms of our regime, but also maintain some fairness and representation for, for people who, in some cases, the majority who are losing. You, uh,
0: you mentioned in in one of your answers, you mentioned cynicism earlier and Sometimes I wonder if we expect too much out of our politicians. Like, did, did the public make the politicians cynical? Or do you have to be cynical to be a politician?
2: Yeah, I mean, you look it's it's a tough job, right? I mean, I, I yeah, I mean, one of the things, and again, this was something around in the 70s. There's a classic book called Homestyle by a scholar named Richard Fenno. And he actually embedded himself in kind of congressional offices. He'd go back and visit, visit districts with members of, of Congress. And one of the patterns he started seeing in the '70s was one of the best ways to stay in Congress was to run against Congress. Hmm. So that cynicism, I think, has this kind of, uh, you know, kind of synergistic effect into this this feedback loop. Is if I, as a member of the United States House of Representatives, want to stay in the House of Representatives, maybe I've kind of stoked some of that anti-establishment sense that run for Congress by running against Congress. So I have an electoral benefit to kind of denigrate the institution in which I want to go serve. And mm-hmm. I, I absolutely think this case, I mean, skepticism is good, right? You know, the whole idea of kind of bicameralism and uh, separation of power is built on skepticism and, you know, lack of trust of the common person, but skepticism is always good. When it kind of crosses the line into cynicism, That that's where it's dangerous. And I think, you know, you hit it, and that was a great question because that incentive to stay in office by running against the institution, I think, just kind of fuels that citizen unrest, and then they see it validated by mm-hmm. political elites, mm-hmm. and and now political elites who are within the chamber and perfectly happy to just completely undo things just because they can. Um, it, it's a dangerous time, and again, that, that that's not ideological right now. I think it's coming mostly from the right, but you can be certain that they're certain times too that there are voices on the left that would be just as happy to kind of steamroll some of this stuff uh, uh, in certain situations as well so um, ag- again I think that's an excellent point and the citizen probably has this kind of interactive effect between citizens and um, clearly elites
1: the- shift a little bit, but we're staying within Congress. You also do a lot of research around lame duck sessions. And so um, I'm curious, first, will you explain to our audience what a lame duck or post-election session is and how those sort of change from being an exception to the norm and why it's important for us to know about those implications?
2: Yeah, this is one of those little quirks of kind of congressional history that I found when I think it was late in grad school, early, early when I started as an assistant professor. And I noticed that there was regular sessions of Congress that convened after the November elections. And part of that was a um, kind of just a consequence of that weird schedule that Congress developed. They had three sessions and, you know, back when it was hard to get to DC and they wanted to have breaks so people could go back and hold their other jobs. But the reason it interested me is one of the things we all talked about, members of Congress are shaped by their constituents. So one of the things that members of Congress that that constrain them and make them behave the way they do is the fact that they stand for re-election. We call it the electoral connection. Well, here we're having sessions in which chunks of the membership are released from that tie to constituents. It's like, hey, I lost my election. I still got three months of service to do. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Are they changing their votes? Do leadership capitalize on these kind of, all right, hey, you lost, you're not coming back. Why didn't you just vote with the party? So we're mm. interested in kind of questions like that. It serves as this kind of a neat natural experiment, and and at the time when I started studying this, they really were pretty rare. But what the the irony is, after I kind of finished studying them, now they're a regular part of how Congress operates. So even though um, the regularly occurring sessions are no longer there, they were ended with the ratification of the twentieth amendment in the 1930s, third thirties, I believe. But we still see all sorts of these sessions now because Congress can't come to an agreement on certain things. So um, some of it is a bit more strategic. We got to come back and do business, but while we're here, let's try to maybe game the system a bit. Maybe we can capitalize on this. So uh, what well, we saw that made a big difference. I mean, it's not like all of a sudden, a bunch of liberal members of Congress who no longer were tied to the constituents became conservatives. Um, but we do see they might be swayed to support the party uh, every once in a while, uh, or more likely what we see. And this is one of the reasons we don't like term limits as political scientists is, I lost. Why am I going back? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm here. So what, What's the biggest effect? I vote less often. I shirk. I, I don't participate as much. So you can imagine a situation in which we have term limits. And I've just won my fourth term to the U.S. House. And I know it's going to be my last one what incentive do I have to actually do the job? So I'll go to DC and I'll participate here and there. But, you know, it's like senioritis, right? Your last semester of high school, your last semester of college, there's not a lot of <laughs> a fire in the belly to, you know, keep mm-hmm. the pedal to the metal and like, Hey, I got two years. I'm just going to kind of play out the string and collect my paycheck and, and then figure out what I'm going to do after I serve in Congress. So, you know makes interest groups a lot more uh, mm-hmm. influential and a lot of folks like i'm not so much worried about legislation i'm worried about maybe currying favor with some of these interest groups to maybe get a job so
0: mm-hmm. um, that
2: iron triangle you got it
0: yeah so <laughs> i mean
2: it, it was started out as just kind of this interesting little quirk but there's got into it i mean it really there was more to it and now you know it's kind of poo-pooed initially but because because they've become a much more common thing in the modern era people have picked up on it so you're ahead kind of, of your time yeah if i just timed it a little differently maybe I'm <laughs> and i'd hope to write a book about it because but the career path of leaving houston and coming to tech kind of changed the uh, incentive structure for mm-hmm. how to go about getting tenure you know if i'd gotten my tenure at houston i would have written a book on it and that would have been kind of a nice kind of capstone to, to that level of research but um, eight years or seven years, however many times I say that was enough. So not let others look at it and see if they can come up with some interesting insights about that.
0: Yeah. I've had conversations with people I love. I've had conversations mm-hmm. with people that I like very much. And it goes like this. Y'all tell me if y'all heard anything like this. <laughs> the worst member of X party is better than any member of the other. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, how can there be any type of deliberation when, when the aim seems to be, well, we'll just wait it out, and we'll gridlock and do nothing. And by doing nothing, the people in power will lose their spot, and then we'll get some power, and then we'll ram it down their throats. Mm-hmm. Is that where
2: we're living? Is that, is that life right now, or what? I think you kind of nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. some Some context, though. I mean— so you know, I brought a mansion, and and he's one example. But I, I think the House members, and there there are fewer of them, and they're less prominent. But uh, when you say best and worst, you could say you know if we're, we, let's define best and worst in terms of most supportive, least supportive. So you know, we talk about the least supportive Democrat under a Democratic majority. That is more desirable for a Democrat than even a, a, a Republican who is less supportive of the Republican Party. And one of the reasons is the House is a very hierarchical institution. So there are all these votes in terms of procedure and moving ahead in the agenda. So the idea there is, yeah, there might be a lot of Republicans we really like and we share some common ground with. But on these procedural matters, if I have my person in power, uh, at least I'll vote on the procedure. So um, there's that, but you're right. We I think we've moved beyond that notion, again, of a conservative Democrat voting his or her district. So you might be only 50% supportive of your democratic kind of agenda, but that's still better than someone who's going to do it at 30%. But given the fact that we now don't have those folks, is there's no overlap. So that was at a time in which there was actually overlap where some Democrats were more conservative than some Republicans. So some Republicans would vote for the Democrats because they were kind of predisposed to do that. Now it's like, you know, if you look at the graphs of the distribution, it's like this, mm-hmm. there's this no man, it's like World War One. The Democrats are entrenched on one side, the Republicans are entrenched on one, on the other side. And then there's this no man's land where there are no people. And um, in terms of trying to, negotiate trying to compromise you're right who do you compromise with there's nobody there and and that kind of story about the best member of my the worst member of my party is better than the best member of their other party takes on a completely different kind of context when there's no overlap and there's no ability to kind of attract folks from the other party um, to enter into any agreement because they're just so distant ideologically and policy-wise it's It's very pessimistic, but I think it's also quite accurate where we are.
1: Hmm. Okay, simple question: (laughs) What are your twenty twenty two midterm predictions? Ooh, I know. Simple, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it used to be really easy, right? The president's party will lose seats, and it's probably still going to be like that. But you know, it's a totally different kind of time. So, um, Democrats, you know, they lost the house. They lost seats in the house this time, despite winning the presidency so it's very likely we'll see democratic losses in the house which is consistent with historical patterns now how it'll differ from just kind of the historical norm will be interesting is um you know right now in terms it's interesting you you see all these bills languishing that democrats support like with the the bill on voting and you look at the components of it they enjoy like two-thirds of the public support these These positions, yet they're not passing. Coupled with just the echo chamber, what politics is now. So, you know, if if negativity is a motivator, Republicans are going to be motivated to vote against Biden, even though components of the Biden agenda seem to be really popular. But when minorities can stop it, they're they're hypothetical. So, you'll probably see Republican again. If it were to tomorrow, probably see Republicans gain twenty seats, which would be a pretty big swing in their favor. They'd have a, a tight majority. I don't remember what the Senate map looks like. Senate's always tougher because it depends on who's running and where. Um, so the Democrats it are- somewhat pro- favors
1: Democrats. Yeah, I think it not, does. Not a lot.
2: So again, it's something, again, you see is a flux where maybe Democrats pick up a seat or two or lose a seat or two. But but again, it's right on the razor's edge. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's probably something along the lines of Biden will be facing kind of what Obama did, but probably not at the magnitude Obama did when they got shellacked in, in 2010, 2010. remember my years it was 2010 right yes okay wow didn't seem like that doesn't seem like 11 years ago but it was right yeah so i think it'll be probably in lines with the historical pattern but you know it's interesting too the economy is in a much stronger position now i think than most of us thought it would be i mean i really Mm -hmm. thought that post pandemic we're going to see this crash well now we're seeing inflation i mean i think Mm -hmm. there's all this um, pent-up demand people want to do things like go on trips go to restaurants and that's like people saying you know what i don't think i want to work for minimum wage Mm-hmm. so we'll see how that goes and you know apparently lumber is a thing now so people talk about lumber is super expensive and you think about well what does that mean well that's huge implications for housing yeah. We're seeing housing prices skyrocket so is that bringing us back to 2007 in a bubble who knows so, i mean it's just yeah, you can't you know, find a you bicycle
0: would, you... anywhere there's no bikes really nowhere i've tried to that's buy a bicycle insane. i don't care what kind. i don't care how expensive <laughs> the bike cannondales
2: sold out gone okay. I'm lucky about wow. my bike. Three years ago, then. So,
1: Ben and I bought ours at the beginning of the pandemic, and we've used them like three times.
2: <laughs> <laughs> my my wife and bought a lot of um, a lot of gym equipment. So you know, there's one like my wife loves going to the gym, but she now can through a combination of online subscriptions and equipment at home and a mm-hmm. bike at home do that. Mm-hmm. So is that going to be a return to go back to the gym? And um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, people are asking us at the university like enrollments up, but. You know, enrollments are changing is like, what's that mean? I don't think any of us really know. I think right. we're really at this time where things are in flux and people are just kind of sorting stuff out. And it's not just politically, it's lifestyle. It's, you know, I'm getting ready to go on a trip on Monday. And it's like, oh my God, I haven't gotten in a car and left the state of Texas. <laughs> in like two years. I mean, mm-hmm. my last trip was, well, we, other than a family trip to go to a state park about an hour and a half away, my last trip, I went to Dallas last March of 2020. And so, it's weird. We went out to eat for the first time last Saturday, like, okay, that's stuff we used to do. And like, I didn't do it for a year. And that was okay. So (laughs) now I have to kind of convince myself it's okay to get in the car and drive to see my mom or go to the restaurant. So, and I think that's kind of silly examples. But when you're talking about making decisions for students is like, you know, do I move back to go to -to face-to-face classes? Well, maybe next semester. And I don't I don't think we know how this is all shaken out. So I think it's going to take two, three years to kind of yeah. reequilibrate. And I don't think it's going to be the same, clearly not going to be the same as it was in 2020, but you know how it's changed. The housing markets are crazy. I just, you know, for whatever reason, I love reading the New York times and people go look for apartments. Like, <laughs> I don't know why. And I, I kind of do, but apparently rents in Manhattan are going down because a lot of people just left.
0: Yeah. they fled, you know? the now
2: yeah. We've learned that remote. They working, moved to places like Waco and right.
1: Made our housing market go up like 40%.
2: (laughs) And here too, in Austin. But, you know, as we're learning now, like, you know, you don't have to work nine to five in the office. Maybe you work eight till noon and then spend time at home. I mean, I think we're learning that. So I think some folks are lucky that they can work remotely. So they decided, you know, I'm maybe not going to live in the city proper, but I'll live in the city proper and have a lake home or, or so, I mean, we're seeing all sorts of weird migration changes too. So I, it's interesting intellectually, but I think it's also really scary when you realize that, you know, we we live in these markets and have to figure out, are we going to be able to afford a house? Are we going to be able to send our kids to college? And, you know, this is kind of a crazy time. So. Mm-hmm. so no limitations.
1: What do you study?
2: Oh, I study American politics. I study primarily politics. Um, Legislative politics. My primary areas of interest within the realm of legislative politics are the United States Congress uh, across a wide swath of time. I've studied modern Congress, and I just published a paper that looked at uh, roll call voting from 1821 to 1921. Uh, but but primarily roll call voting, and and that's covered. Uh, member participation, actually voting and not voting. And then kind of the content of votes is do people vote consistent with party, consistent with ideology? So.
1: And if you had any funding that you needed and no considerations of, you know, promotion and moving up, what would you study?
2: uh, That's an excellent question. I'm finding stuff just completely out of the realm of my normal training and my normal political science work, but I think political psychology. So some of the stuff we talked mm-hmm. about earlier with, with this kind of mindset of party ID and identity and behavior, to me is just fascinating in the sense that you know, people will change their views to match that of leadership rather than abandoning leadership to find someone who supports their views. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of kind of motivated reasoning and group identity and, and things of that sort, uh, I'd like to hang out with folks who, Who uh, who study that uh, study um, kind of more of an experimental psychology kind of perspective to learn a bit about that, or I'd just like to expand my study of legislatures to include other countries, so I can field Mm. research in other countries and (laughs) get language. That's the money.
1: (laughs) Yeah,
2: (laughs) speak Spanish, Finnish, Norwegian, Swedish, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Latvian, whatever to go to these (laughs) legislatures.
1: Yeah, we still haven't figured out how to get to the costa rica campus
2: we'll keep working on that yeah we got to work
1: on that one (laughs) anthony and i have come up with some really funny course names in the past like here we could this is how we would do
0: it oh i'm gonna plan to study abroad but i got a couple (laughs) things to do because that's work that's 18 months of work so i'm not ready for that just yet but i want to do it (laughs)
2: yeah well hopefully that'll get i mean i think you know they they i think they anticipated that there would be this steady stream of people Go into the Costa Rica campus, and then that didn't happen, and a pandemic hit.
1: Right. So hopefully
2: they'll actually get that. So then you know. So right now the only kind of stuff, at least we do in political science, are the intro classes because there haven't been any cohorts to study anything but that. But the dean is aware of that, and hopefully we could because I think it would be a great opportunity again from our perspective to go down there and learn about it, but um, but also to you know teach interesting classes for for the folks who are there. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, Dr. Knockin, what is the quote
2: of the month? Well, I always draw for the Big Lebowski. So I, I'm hoping, and, and this nice. is a big one, but so as I watch it, two of them always come to mind because as an academic, I kind of have uh, imposter syndrome, but I'm also a bit worried about the future of democracy. So I go, you're out of your element, Donnie. <laughs> which is always something I kind of feel like, again, and that can be good or bad. Donnie, I don't think it was out of his element, but Walter said he was. So worrying about our element is one. But the other thing is this aggression will not stand. Will it's, stand. I, I think that's <laughs> so one good. that we really need. To, and, and again, it's it's, <laughs> it's funny, but also when I think there is a lot of aggression and a lot of this aggression is coming from you know the state. You know, when I talk about the state, you know, we're like the feds, everyone's worried about the feds. Well, the feds I less problem with than state and local government sometimes, mm-hmm. and the aggression we see there. I mean, and and the populace, aggressing, you know, being aggressive. So this aggression will not stand. I think if we we think about that is and give it some thought is like, yeah, there's a lot of aggression and probably too much aggression. So
0: love it, love it.
2: This has been.
1: This is for the CV. Thanks for listening, mom.
0: This is for the CV. Is a Larson and Lestrat production. Editing done by Rebecca Larson. Music performed by Issa Black. Thanks, man.